Well, if you, if you could, I, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 20 as we continue our series in the gospel according to Matthew, a series that we have entitled The King and His Kingdom. We said at the very beginning of our series in Matthew that the big idea of the gospel according to Matthew is that Jesus is the king who rules with all authority over the kingdom of heaven, which consists of disciples of all nations or from all nations who obey all that he has commanded. There's something in the gospel according to Matthew uniquely about Jesus the king and his kingdom. And this morning we find ourselves in a passage which directly addresses something about this kingdom, and that is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or find uh, Matthew 20 in your Bible app on your smartphone or device as we read together from Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. As you turn there, you'll find these words reading from the ESV. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I became a strong advocate of the saying equal pay for equal work when I was in high school even if I was unaware of it at the time. See, my convictions on this this issue didn't arise from any deep-seated political conviction. It wasn't born out of any sort of rousing debate with one of my classmates. Uh, But rather, my, my perspective on this issue came straight from personal experience. See, I myself was the victim of pay inequity. The year was 2000. My grade was the 12th, my anticipation of life after high school at a fever pitch, my academic focus negligible, and yet there were still assignments that had to be completed, presentations to be made, group projects to be sorted. And I can remember in one of my final classes my senior year, 
a class on American history, my friends and I had to do a presentation either on the Constitution or Bill Clinton. Could have even been on Ronald Reagan. I suppose it would be stranger if I remembered the exact nature of the assignment 20 years later. Um, but my friends and I had to do a presentation of some sort in our American history class. And my friend Joel and I, we, we sort of did the bare minimum in order to get a passing grade and move on to graduation and, truth be told, our senior trip. And um, I remember receiving a C on that assignment, which, looking back in hindsight, was really pretty generous of my teacher at the time. But my friend Joel and I, uh, later on that week, were uh, together on our senior trip, and we were talking about the project. And he shared with me that our teacher had pulled him aside and told him that uh, though she had given me a C, that she had given him a B um, because she believed that he had done more work on the project than I had. Now, to my memory and my recollection, he hadn't worked harder on the project than I had. He put in more time than I had. He didn't do better work than I had done. And so my initial reaction was the travesty, the injustice. Where is the fairness, the equity, the sense of what is right? Yes, equal pay for equal work. But as I sit here now some 20 years later and confess to you that even my C was generous on the part of my teacher, uh, Joel's was equally as generous. I realize now that my cries for fairness and equity only would have landed me with a failing grade. Now, the passage in front of us this morning is meant to teach us something similar in the realm of spirituality and following Jesus, because it's meant to confront us with the generosity of God's grace. Now, I want at the very outset to state the main point or the purpose of this parable to you in the plainest possible terms, uh, terms that we'll find directly in the text in front of us if you have a Bible open in front of you. And that main point is this, that this, this passage plainly teaches that in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. That's the main message of this parable of Jesus, that in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, in order to make this point, Jesus uses a parable that at once seems both foreign and familiar. It's foreign to us in, in the, the fact that it takes us squarely into the context of first century day laborers, a, a context with which we're, we're not very familiar, a context in which men go to the marketplace early in the morning seeking to be hired out for the day, typically running from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m., seeking to earn an honest day's wage of one denarius. If you do have an ESV, you'll notice that the footnote at the bottom of the page, footnote three, tells us that a denarius is a day's wage for a laborer. That's a detail that will become very important as we make our way through the text. This parable takes us into this unfamiliar, even foreign world of ancient Near Eastern first century day laborers. But at the same time, this parable seems very familiar to us, doesn't it? Because none of us, I don't think, none of you, will need to be convinced that people ought to be paid equal to the work that they have done. That sentiment is as American as the Equal Pay Act of 1963. Equal pay for equal work. Who can't get on board with that? This parable is foreign, familiar, and yet this parable is also very surprising. Now, you can be thankful that I avoided using the word flabbergasting just to stick with Fs, but I've given it to you now as a bonus. This parable is surprising because it subverts 
our expectations of what is right. It confronts us, again, with the generosity of God's grace. And that surprise, I think, is magnified by the fact that I I believe the best way to read this parable is as a gentle-ish rebuke to the disciples. You see, if we were uh, following along this great story and sort of a Netflix long series, at the beginning of the episode that covered chapter 20, we would have a previously on the gospel according to Matthew. And the recap would take us right into the end of chapter 19, where Jesus is confronted by this rich young man who asks him the question in verse 16 of chapter 19, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man wants to know how he might enter into eternal life, or in our language that we commonly use, how can this man find his way to heaven? Now, after having told this man to keep the commandments, um, Jesus is then asked by him, all these I have kept, verse 20, what do I still lack? What, What thing do I still need to do in order to be perfect? And to this, Jesus responds, verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Now this leads directly into a conversation between Jesus and the disciples about the impossibility of salvation. It's impossible for a rich man or indeed any man or woman for that matter to earn their place in heaven. No, We can't earn our place in heaven. We must trust in Jesus to be forgiven of our sins and granted eternal life. But Peter picks up on the heels of this conversation on something that Jesus had previously said to the rich young man. I want you to notice the question that Peter asks in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. Peter hears Jesus tell the rich young man to sell all that he owns and follow him. And Peter says, Jesus, we've done just what you've called that rich young man to do. What then will we have? Can we go back to that bit that you shared with the rich young man about treasures in heaven, Jesus? I'm a little eager to figure out exactly what you mean by that. If selling everything and following you, if leaving everything and following you means treasures in heaven for this rich young man if he would do so. What does that mean for us, those of us who have followed you from the very beginning, who've been with you since day one? We've left everything, Peter says, and followed you. What will there, there, what will there then be for us? And Jesus in reply here tells Peter and the disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. But he also says in verse 29 that everyone who has left everything to follow Jesus, will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. And it is that everyone who leaves everything that leads to the theme of verse 30, that many who are first will be last and the last first. A theme that's reiterated at the end of our passage, so the last will be first and the first last. See, Jesus here is speaking to Peter and to the twelve about what they can expect in the kingdom of heaven. And he says that in the kingdom of heaven, they might expect the last will be first and the first last. Now, in order to understand this illustration, this parable that Jesus shares, we have to do a little bit of who's who and what's what in order to figure out exactly 
what we're supposed to see as we read this parable. See, the parable here is functioning in such a way that it's supposed to teach us about spiritual realities. There's something here for us to understand about the kingdom of heaven. You see that in verse 1. There are deeper spiritual realities that Jesus is pointing to in this passage. Now, we want to avoid the error of sort of looking at every single detail in the text and trying to infer or figure out what that detail might point to. Now, the the main ideas are in the main characters and the bigger um, uh, aspects or elements of the parable. So what we want to do before we even begin to look at the story itself is to understand who Jesus is referring to, what lies behind or who lies behind the different aspects of this text. I think it's plain to see uh, that the master of the house in this parable is meant to symbolize God himself. Some people would argue that the master of the house is Jesus. I'm fine with that. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. After all, he is God. But the master of the house is God himself, who goes out to hire people to serve in his vineyard. Well, what then of the vineyard? It's difficult for me to understand how any first century Jewish listener, or certainly anybody who is um, fluent in the Old Testament scriptures, would have understood the vineyard to refer to anything other than Israel or the people of God. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, we read this in verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard, here we go, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, certainly it's a very different context there in Isaiah chapter 5. The prophet is speaking of God's judgment against his people on account of their sin, a judgment that will terminate in exile from the land uh, that God had given them. But just for our purposes here this morning, I think that there's a key to understanding the parable in this passage, and it comes in the simple statement, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There's a key to understanding for our parable this morning, even if it was never intended to be so when Isaiah wrote it. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So God is the master of the house who goes out to hire laborers to come into his vineyard to be a part of his people, Israel. And the workers then, not too difficult to figure out, are those who are called to be a part of his people, to go into his vineyard at different points in time from the first into the last. Right. The master of the house is God. The vineyard is the people of God. And the laborers are those called to be a part of the people of God who are then paid their eternal reward at the end of the day. 
So having said all of that by way of context, we're in position now to actually look at this story, this parable, this illustration that Jesus gives. Now in verses 1 through 7, we have what we might refer to as signing day. This is the time at which, in which uh, the master of the house goes out to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. Uh, maybe he's uh, experiencing a harvest, it's harvest time, and he is seeking men to come and help him uh, with all of the work that would need to be done. That's part and parcel of harvest time. But you, you see that he goes out at the beginning of the day during the first hour, and he finds a group of laborers that he comes to an agreement with. Verse 2, he agrees with them to pay them one denarius a day for their services. Just a plain and simple, upfront, fair, clear working wage for an entire day. It's important that we note that in order for these men to have come and worked for the owner of the house or the master of the house, they themselves would have had to have agreed to being paid one denarius a day. They had signed on. They said that's a fair wage. And they come with the, they go with the master of the house to work in the vineyard. But subsequently, as Jesus continues to tell this parable, this owner of the house, the master of the house, goes out several other times, a few more, more times at least, to hire more workers to come into his vineyard. The first group that he hires subsequent that first, uh, first hour group is a group hired at the third hour. He finds them standing idle in the marketplace, and he agrees with them, not on a denarius, but he agrees to pay them whatever is right, whatever is appropriate and fitting, I will give you, verse 4. And so they go. He does the same at the sixth hour, the ninth hour, all the way to the eleventh hour, that great expression that we use to mean uh, just before time runs out. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he asks them, why do you stand idle all day? And they reply that they're not standing idle because they refuse to work, but because no one has hired them. And so this landowner uh, hires these eleventh hour workers to go into his vineyard as well. Now, immediately, we should be able to understand that we're being set up for a real surprise. I mean, if you just think about what's happened already, even in our context, we understand that this is ridiculous. I mean, what landowner, what um, business owner would be hiring people to work just the final hour of the day? And on our end, as people who work, those of us who have jobs and careers, if you're anything like me, you'll know that if I have a dentist appointment at noon, I'm tempted to call it a day. Why go back to work when there's only a couple more hours, a few more hours in the workday? How desperate must these men have been to earn a wage that they would be out there waiting even at the 11th hour, hoping against hope that someone might hire them? But the real drama, the real conflict comes not on signing day, but what begins to take place in verse 8, which we might refer to as payday. Now, I understand that signing day and payday in this parable are the same day because the, the day laborer system was such that you would be paid at the end of the day for your work to buy that day's bread or meal. But you understand the picture. The real drama comes not on signing day. The real drama comes on payday. And it begins in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now, I want you to notice that at this point in the parable, the phrase that brackets the parable in 1930 and 2016, those words of first and last begin to fall like rain in this latter portion of the parable. 
When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Notice that when the foreman is told to pay the laborers, he's told to begin with the last. You should hear in your mind and in your heart the phrase that the last will be first. Quite literally, the last are first here as payment begins to be made. Those hired about the eleventh hour come, and each of them receive a denarius. Now, if things weren't surprising before, they're certainly surprising now. I mean, who can imagine a um, an owner of a business calling all of the the laborers to him at the end of the day and saying, "Right, okay, now it's time to, for payment to be made. Bring the people who've only worked for one hour and give them their wages, an honest day's wage for an honest hour's work." These men are paid the wage, the going rate for an entire day for merely working one hour. Now, there's a phenomenon that happens, I think, with some regularity now in our social media age of professional athletes watching and responding to very publicly uh, the contracts that other professional athletes sign. I can remember well as a Cleveland Cavaliers fan the way that Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors responded to Tristan Thompson's signing a five-year, $82 million contract with Cleveland. He put out on his social media account simply, how much? Astounded that Tristan Thompson would earn that kind of wage. And the implication is clear, and I suppose it makes sense, that if player A is perceived to be better than player B, and player B receives $82 million, well, player A should expect to receive even more than that when it's time for him to re-sign. And I can almost imagine that the workers who had been hired in that first hour might have something of Draymond Green about them as they watch the 11th hour workers come to the front of the line and are paid a full day's wage. They would have immediately pulled out their phones and taken to social media. How much? They would have begin, begun talking to one another and thinking about the fact that if that's the going rate now, a denarius for an hour of work, and we've been here for 12 hours, we should be expecting 12 denarii. We're blooming rich. They would have gone home singing everybody's working for the weekend. They would have been completely overwhelmed with excitement at what they might be able to expect. But alas, notice what the text says. Verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, and we might think the same along with them. But each of them also received a denarius. And they're incredulous. This is astonishing. This is unfair. This is unjust. What happened to the principle of equal pay for equal work, or in this case, more pay for more work? And so on receiving it, verse 11, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last, who are now first, worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That is the first who have now become last. He begins to grumble. They begin to grumble against the master of the house. Even as Old Testament Israel grumbled against the grace of God, here these men grumble, complain, whine, murmur, translate however you'd like. They're incredulous about the grace of God shown to the 11th hour workers. These last worked only one hour. Meanwhile, we've been here bearing the burden of the day and the scorching heat, and yet you have the audacity 
to pay us the same wage that you paid them. Now, in the comments here made by these men, at the very least, they charge the master of the house with a great injustice. But what I want you to see here, as this, the punch of the parable really comes to us in the response of the master of the house, is that in the complaints of those first shift workers is revealed two heart attitudes that are absolutely undeniable. And we see that in the way, again, that the master of the house responds. The first heart attitude that is displayed in this grumbling and this complaining is that, yes, the master of the house is unjust. He does not do what is right. Verse 13, the master of the house responded to him, friend, so sort of distancing here that's taking place. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? You accuse me of injustice and doing that which is not right, but I have done you no wrong. Do we need to pull out your contract? Do we need to review the terms of your employment, the wages that you and I had agreed on, a denarius for a day? Do I need to remind you of the fact that had you not heard me pay out the 11th hour workers, you would have been none the wiser and you would have walked away without a complaint in the world having received exactly what you agreed upon? Friend, I have done you no injustice. Take what belongs to you and go. But the second hard attitude that's revealed here in the way that the master of the house responds is a hard attitude that that his generosity is somehow evil. He continues by saying, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? These are my denarii after all. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, is your eye bad because I am good? Now, in this context, in this culture, there was a view, uh, a thought that giving someone the evil eye, far from simply being a dirty look, could actually curse them. Here the master of the house is saying, are you, are, you, are you cursing me in light of my generosity? Is my grace evil to you? And you notice that there is no resolution here. You might expect that the first hour worker would walk back his complaints a bit. But Jesus just shifts directly from these words from the master of the house to the principle being explained in this parable. The last will be first and the first last. Do you see what Jesus is saying? If we take all of the components of this parable and the spiritual realities that exist behind the characters in the story, What Jesus is telling us very plainly is that in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first and the first last. But what does that mean? Jesus is telling us that this is how God, the master of the house, will reward those who are part of his vineyard, who have been called into his vineyard to serve him in his vineyard. On payday, everyone gets a denarius. What does it mean that the last will be first and the first last? I think the clearest definition of this or explanation of this is found actually on the lips of 
the one who grumbles. Notice again in verse 12 that the complaint is that these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You have made them equal to us. You have made the last equal to the first. If I might paraphrase the principle that Jesus gives us here a bit, it's as if Jesus says, so the last will be equal to the first and the first will be equal to the last. While the first hour workers complain against the Johnny-come-latelys who arrive at the 11th hour and the payment that they receive, Jesus is clear that in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be equal to the first and the first will be equal to the last. So what Jesus is teaching to the disciples and to you and me this morning, is it, is it not that the, the blessings of the kingdom of heaven eternal life and hundredfold and all the things that are discussed in the end of chapter 19. Is Jesus teaching not that those blessings are given equally to all who follow Jesus, regardless of when they are called? Is it not that Jesus is teaching that everyone who leaves everything to follow Jesus will be given eternal life even at the 11th hour? Use all those E's for emphasis, no pun intended. Everyone who leaves everything to follow Jesus will be given eternal life even at the 11th hour. That's the message that Jesus is proclaiming to the disciples and to you and to me. I have to acknowledge that this is a difficult teaching to have sink down into our hearts. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian this morning. This parable has something to say to you. My non-Christian friend, I can imagine that there are some who hear the message of Christianity, hear the message of the Bible, the gospel, and think to themselves, as I once did, that given the amount of time that I've lived my life outside of Christ, the amount of time that I've lived in sin, the things that I've done, the sins that I've committed, the opportunity for salvation or to follow Jesus has simply passed me by. And to you, I say, friend, you couldn't be more wrong. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a human being and took on flesh in order to live a perfect life, obeying where you disobey, living righteously where you've sinned, succeeding where you've failed, And he laid down his life on the cross to pay not for his sins, but for yours. As one of the great hymns of the faith puts it, in your place or my place, condemned he stood. Now Jesus laid down his perfect and sinless life to pay the penalty that your imperfect and sinful life deserves. And he rose again from the dead three days later to show that God received and accepted his payment on your behalf if you would trust in him. And friend, if you would trust in Jesus today, regardless of how old you are, regardless of of what you've done or where you've been, even if it's the 11th hour, quite literally, of your life, let me tell you that if you would trust in Jesus today, you will be as equally loved, as equally accepted and forgiven as anyone who's ever believed, even in their youngest of years. I can remember the joy that this 
parable brought to me when in my uh, early 20s, I trusted in Jesus. Having felt like the opportunity for salvation had passed me by, having felt like I had sinned my way out of an opportunity for faith in Jesus, having not grown up in an explicitly Christian home, and yet realizing that in light of all of those things, or in spite of all of those things, rather, simply by placing my faith in Jesus, there wasn't anyone who could take my denarius away from me. It had been given to me by the Lord Jesus himself. Equal pay for equal work. Because at the end of the day, regardless of whether you've believed in the 11th hour or the first, the payment that everyone in the kingdom of heaven receives is on account of Jesus' work on your behalf. So though it seems like there's some sort of inequity here, what we have in this parable is equal pay for equal work. This parable brought me such joy when I finally believed. I pray it would bring you joy this morning as well. But you know, time passes and moves along. And I have been following Jesus now for about as long as I lived outside of Christ. And I know what it is not only to be an 11th hour Christian, but I've, I've come to sort of view myself more as a first shift or at least second shift Christian. And I know what it is to look down my nose in resentment and, and sometimes in judgment at the Johnny-come-latelys to the kingdom, those new Christians who don't know as much as me or haven't had the same experience as me. And I've heard this gentleish rebuke from Jesus and been corrected. You know, I have to remind myself from time to time and remind you as well that Christianity is not a hipster faith. Dear brother or sister in Christ, there is no reward for having followed Jesus before he was popular. I want you to listen to the way that Bishop J.C. Ryle describes the principle laid down in this passage of the first and the last being equals as it relates to eternal life. Now, I have to say that this this quote is a little bit more on the ish side than the gentle side of gentle-ish, but nevertheless, it's worth reading. J.C. Ross says, there can be no doubt that this doctrine sounds strange to the ignorant and inexperienced Christian. It confounds the pride of human nature. It leaves the self-righteous no room to boast. It is a leveling, humbling doctrine and gives occasion to many a murmur. But it is impossible to reject it unless we reject the whole Bible. True faith in Christ, though it be but a day old, justifies a man before God as completely as the faith of him who has followed Christ for 50 years. The righteousness in which Timothy will stand, you remember Timothy acquainted with the scriptures from his youth, is the same as that of the penitent thief, you'll remember, who professes faith in Christ as he's dying. Both will be saved by grace alone. Both will owe all to Christ. We may not like this, but it is the doctrine of this parable and not of this parable only, but of the whole New Testament. And on Christian friends, I felt the stinging rebuke of this gentleish correction from Jesus. I pray that you will as well. What of it? 
if in fact God does choose to save a man like Kanye West, who if his faith is genuine, it's far, far above my pay grade. But if his faith is genuine, even in spite of all of his lavish living before he knew Jesus, even in spite of the fact that he's only been following Jesus for under a year, is every bit as loved and accepted and, and uh, granted eternal life as you are. What of it if, in fact, it's true the reports that came out of the prison in which Jeffrey Dahmer once lived, that at the end of his life, after having been a, an absolutely terrible serial killer, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus just before he died? Or if those seem too distant to you, what of it if, in fact, God would choose to save you as a young child and then allow a brother or sister to live a wayward lifestyle all the way to the end of their life, at which time God chooses to give them the very same eternal life that he gave you? See, friends, when you and I grumble against the Johnny-come-latelys, what we're actually doing is grumbling against the generous grace of our God. We complain against his mercy as if it were unjust. We complain against his grace as if it were evil. But there is no place for complaint. As you and I demonstrate this attitude so often when we boast of the age at which we came to faith. I became a Christian when I was three. Praise God. Some of us became Christians at 23. Some of us, I dare to say, fall foul of the teaching of this parable when we boast in our legacy in our local church. Well, I've been a member here, I've attended here since the Tyler administration. <laughs> Praise God. You can tell us about what the Great Depression was like at some point. But what does that have to do with eternal life before a God who gives eternal life equally to all who will follow him? Friends, each and every one of us needs to return again and again to the gospel and understand in our heart of hearts that in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first and the first will be last. Or if you'd like, that everyone who leaves everything to follow Jesus will be given eternal life equally, even if it's the 11th hour. Our protests about what's fair in light of the kingdom of heaven are much like my protests about my grade back then in American history. We have to be careful about how we protest. Because if God, like my teacher, gave us what we deserve, fairness as we account it, well, each and every one of us would be given a failing grade. But praise God. Praise God that he does not operate on the basis of, we, of what we view as fairness. Rather, he gives equal pay for equal work, giving to all who trust in the work of Jesus on their behalf eternal life, even at the 11th hour. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a merciful and kind and gracious God. Thank you that in the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first and the first will be last. At the end of the day, all who follow Jesus are equally justified equally given eternal life, equally loved and accepted and forgiven, where we pray that you would allow this truth to sink into our hearts. Pray, Lord, for the one who, 
who thinks that their life has been lived for too long outside of Jesus, I pray that even in the 11th hour right now that you would draw them to yourself. I pray for those of us like myself who have the tendency to look down our noses at those who are perhaps less mature in the faith than we perceive ourselves to be, who haven't followed Jesus for as long as we have followed Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us. That you give us that gentle-ish rebuke that you gave to Peter and to the disciples. In my kingdom, the last will be first and the first will be last. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.